Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is coming out at the tail end of Hanukkah. So we thought we'd take a look at what is perhaps America's most iconically Jewish brand, Manischewitz. Take it from star of stage and screen, Mayim Bialik. Pretty much every holiday memory I have regarding food relates to Manischewitz. Of course, she was paid to say that. She's a Manischewitz spokesperson, speaking in a video produced by the company. But I feel the same way. When I think about Jewish holidays, I think about the oil burning for eight days and the plagues descending on the Egyptians and all that. But I also think about Manischewitz matzah and their matzah ball soup mix. Mmm, so good. And I think about Manischewitz wine. If you're not familiar with it, it's sort of absurdly, grotesquely sweet. It is not good wine. Some people find it undrinkable. And yet, for many, even those same people who find it undrinkable, a Jewish holiday just isn't complete without a bottle of Manischewitz. In fact, the first time I got drunk, it was when I was about 14 years old, I was at a Passover Seder. Somehow, no one was paying attention to me. I was seated next to the bottle of Manischewitz, and I overindulged. This was my introduction to inebriation and also to hangovers. I do not recommend getting hungover on Manischewitz. You vomit purple. I thought you should know that. Anyway, for this special holiday episode, we thought we'd look at the business behind Manischewitz. How did an immigrant rabbi use modern technology to dominate the millennia-old market for matzah? And how did a wine manage to become the taste of Judaism when it tastes so gross? I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. Today on the show, Purple Rain. That's spelled R-E-I-G-N. You get it. Purple Rain, the story of Manischewitz. In 1888, Rabbi Dov Bear Manischewitz left Russia for Cincinnati. When he got there, he started baking matzah for the city's Jewish community. Matzah is a kind of unleavened, crunchy cracker that's important in some Jewish observances. If you've ever been to a Passover Seder, you've probably eaten matzah. Anyway, Rabbi Manischewitz was making his matzah by hand, but he couldn't make it fast enough to meet demand. So he figured out a way to make matzah with a machine. I actually have the patent upstairs. Shani Seidman is the chief marketing officer for the Manischewitz company. I have a lot of archival stuff from the Manischewitz company. So I have the original patent of the original matzah bakery. I have like hand drawings of the equipment and I've uh, signed patent for the first machine matzah in, ever in the United States. But they invented producing matzahs to scale. Before that, it was only handmade. When they started manufacturing matzah like that, was it considered radical to mass produce matzah? Oh, yes. And radical because it's not just innovation. This is religious. It's ritual. 
Rabbi Manischewitz had to contend with Jewish authorities who didn't like his modern methods. But he eventually managed to convince the Jewish world that as long as Jews were operating the machines, and as long as they followed kosher guidelines, like they could only take 18 minutes to make the matzah, the matzah that the machines produced was kosher. He actually wanted to service the community, not just the community in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he first started the company, to service other Jews in other areas of the country that need matzah for Passover. So the intent behind this was to scale it for the needs of the community and to do it to the utmost kosher standards. Rabbi Manischewitz died in 1914. His sons took over the operation. In 1923, they took the company public. In 1932, they opened a second factory in New Jersey and relocated corporate headquarters there. They continued to build the business, reaching beyond the most traditional, observant Jewish enclaves and expanding along with America's growing Jewish population. And if you see the evolution of the matzah box, you begin to see the marketing strategies of the company started off in all in Yiddish and their marketing material all in Yiddish because they were servicing a local community that was speaking that language. Then as the community grew and they wanted to expand, it was half Yiddish, half English. Then it became only in English. In 1940, the Manischewitz company began to move beyond matzah, doing brand extensions that eventually included soup, gefilte fish, and other kosher foods, 70 products in all. But by far the most successful brand extension wasn't for food, it was for wine. Kosher wine has all sorts of requirements that make it kosher, from how it's handled to who's handling it. And whether or not Jews drink wine at regular meals, wine is a part of various important ceremonies and rituals. So if you're observant, you need some on hand. Jewish immigrants in the early 20th century largely made kosher wine in small batches from the conquered grapes that grow in the northeastern United States. The grapes were sour, so vintners added lots of sugar to them, which made these wines very sweet. When Prohibition began in 1920, kosher winemakers had to get special dispensation from the government to provide wine for religious services. But when Prohibition ended in 1933, the market opened up, and there was suddenly space for a mass-produced kosher wine brand. One of the people who'd been making small-batch kosher wine spotted a big opportunity. It goes back to this man, Maya Robinson, who is really the key figure in the Monarch Wine Company. And the great brilliance of Robinson really was as a marketer. That's what it was about. Roger Horowitz is the author of the book Kosher USA. He says Meyer Robinson, who'd been making small amounts of wine under the brand name Monarch, realized there'd be lots of competition for the expanding kosher wine market after Prohibition, and that the winner would be the wine that could stand out and differentiate itself. So how do you get a visibility in the marketplace? You get a brand that people can recognize. And what brand was out there? Manischewitz. The Manischewitz Food Company was something that was very well established going back to the 1890s. And so Robinson realized that if he could have his wine named for Manischewitz, his wine would benefit by the Manischewitz brand. Apparently, they knew the, the Manischewitz family, so they go and they negotiate a license agreement, a 99-year license agreement, which um, is still in effect for the folks who make Manischewitz today. It was a successful partnership from the start. But Robinson soon saw that his revenue numbers would be bounded by the nature of his products and its target customers. It's not sold on its flavor, on its quality. It's sold on its tradition, which limits you to connecting it to tradition for people to purchase it. So he's doing very well in the Jewish community, but the market ultimately is quite limited. 
Minashevitz cruised along like this for a while, serving its core constituency. But in the 1950s, some interesting sales data started to come in. When Meyer Robinson looked into where Manischewitz wine was selling best and who was buying it, the answers he found were unexpected. So by the late 50s, the estimates are that 80% of Manischewitz consumers are not Jews, which is to say it's overwhelmingly an African-American wine. At first glance, it's a curious development. How did a kosher wine made for observant Jews turn into a product that appealed to and was eventually targeted to African-Americans? Yeah, I'm Adrian Miller, the soul food scholar who's dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. When I was researching my book on the history of soul food, one of the most gratifying aspects of my research was just looking through historical sources, especially old newspapers and magazines. And lo and behold, in Ebony Magazine, which was the high class magazine for black America in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there's ads for Manischewitz. And, and these ads are notable African-Americans, mainly jazz people. So uh, Billy Exine is the one that comes to mind. But I was like looking at these ads and I'm like, what? So these black entertainers were pitch people for these kosher products. The ads were not about religious observance or the careful protocols that go into making a wine qualify as kosher. They were about projecting an image. If you want to be cool like me, Billy Exine, drink Manischewitz. If you want to set the party off right, Drink Manischewitz. Adrian hadn't known about this connection before, but he says that once he considered it, the appeal of Manischewitz to African-American buyers wasn't all that far-fetched. For one, his book makes clear that there was a long-standing connection between soul food and kosher food. In part, that's because many Jewish families in the South hired African-American cooks, who then became familiar with Jewish cuisine. And in part, it's because African-Americans were accustomed to buying kosher products. You see, study after study showing that African-Americans would often think of kosher butchers as selling better meat. Because when they would go to these other racist white butchers, they would give them tainted meat, old meat, that kind of stuff. So they knew that if it was kosher, it was good. The sacred nature of Manischewitz, the fact that it was blessed by a religious authority, even if it was a different religion, also seemed to help. The thing that was really interesting to me, and this is a personal memory of mine, is that we would drink kosher wine <laughs> around Easter time. As I started to do more research into African-American food traditions, I found that in the South, these kosher wines like Mogan David and Manischewitz are often called praise wine. And so there's a significance to kind of the religious culture. Another part of Manischewitz's appeal was its sugary taste, which was comfortingly familiar. And part of that is a reflection of African-American home winemaking traditions. In the rural South, a lot of people made their own wine. And so it tended to be on the sweet side. So I think it's just a continuation of that tradition. Whatever it was that created this sales trend, Shawnee Seidman, the current Manischewitz CMO, says the brand hopped on and rode it as far as it would go. When Manischewitz recognized that the Black community was buying their product, they went for it. And they put a lot of marketing dollars and support behind that. Hi, here's one of my new favorites. Among the remnants of this era are that aforementioned print ad featuring Billy Eckstein and another featuring the doo-wop group The Ink Spots with the caption, Manischewitz Kosher Wine Harmonizes With Us Sweetly. Sammy Davis Jr., himself a converted Jew, at one point became a brand spokesman, doing this TV ad for a Manischewitz beverage called Almanetta. Almanetta for Manischewitz Wine. Try some after dinner tonight. 
It's delicious. There was also this 1954 tune from the group The Crows titled Mambo Shevitz that wasn't commissioned by Manischewitz, but might as well have been. Man, oh man, that music, baby, dig that beat. Like a glass of wine, it's so cool and sweet. Gets my pulse a pulse and then my feet. Always start to do the mumbo shabbats. Man, oh man, that really... The brand also came out with a slogan, Man, oh man, that became a popular catchphrase. The upshot of all this was that, according to Roger Horowitz, in the middle of the 20th century, Manischewitz achieved a remarkable level of notoriety. There was a consumer research survey done in the late 50s, which discovered 70% of Americans had seen a Manischewitz television advertisement. One third had seen a advertisement in a newspaper. That's enormous recognition. At its peak, the company is making 13 million gallons of wine per year from its facilities. So it's a big-time operation, large advertising budget, large consumer recognition, noticeable outside of various kinds of Jewish circles. So it had this visibility which really persisted. By 1972, the name Manischewitz was so well-known, it was used as a sort of replacement for swearing on the moon. Here's astronaut Gene Cernan, in the midst of a moonwalk during the Apollo 17 mission, exclaiming as he throws something through the moon's low-gravity atmosphere. Man, it's Shevitz, look at that go. You see that? I wish you'd be more careful. This astounding level of brand awareness made Manischewitz wonder if it could move beyond its Jewish and African-American customers and goose sales in other demographics. They thought, okay, let's see if we can break through with a white Christian audience. And so they have these advertisements in Saturday Evening Post uh, with people drinking Manischewitz who are so clearly not Jews. It's very humorous. The hairstyles and the styles and all that. And it's a complete failure. Manischewitz was bumping up against the limits of its appeal. And bigger threats were yet to come. My father comes home one day with French wine. French wine. That's kosher. More on that when we come back. Specially sweetened, a proud product of Manischewitz Wine Company, New York. As Manischewitz wine rose to great heights in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, a rival company was plotting a counterattack. Kedem wine was similar to Manischewitz, made from the same sour conquered grapes and sweetened with grape juice to make it palatable. It was always in Manischewitz's shadow. But the immigrant Jewish family behind Kedem, the Herzogs, had a revolutionary notion to make kosher wine that tasted like wine. Roger Horowitz says the Herzogs viewed this as a crucial strategic move. We can't beat up Manischewitz on sweet kosher wine. They've got that market. They've got that brand embedded. Let's make our brand something different. So they came up with the advertising slogan, kosher means special, not sweet. So early 1980s, they really aggressively market, essentially, dinner wines that are kosher. The Herzogs started sourcing grapes from growers in Napa Valley, California, and they began to make drier, subtler kosher wines. Others used grapes from France to achieve the same effect. It was the early 80s, and wine culture was burgeoning in America. Knowing something about wine, drinking decent wine with dinner, was no longer just for effete Europeans. 
and Jews and African Americans were not excluded from this trend. They were interested in drier, high-quality wines, too. And suddenly, that treacly Manischewitz taste seemed wildly out of step with the times. It's not the case that that Manischewitz wine, you know, collapses. It's just that its moment as a sort of dynamic growth wine has really ended by the early 1980s. And the shift to dry wine is what hems it in. It means that there's no place to go. And the company at this point is so connected to sweet wines that they can't diversify. The brand, if you will, that was such an advantage for, say, we're talking 30, 40 years, has become an albatross around their neck. They can't become something different. Seeing the writing on the wall, Meyer Robinson and the Monarch Wine Company sold their Manischewitz operation in 1987 to what is now Constellation Brands, a massive beer and liquor company that imports products like Corona and Modelo. Just a few years later, in 1990, the Manischewitz family sold the food side of the business to a private equity firm for about $43 million. After that, it bounced from one corporate owner to another, at one point getting sold to a division of Bain Capital, the private equity firm that was founded by Mitt Romney. But last year, the Manischewitz company was sold to the Herzog family. The Herzog's holding company, Keiko, still makes, among many other kosher products, Kedem wine. So one-time rivals have become corporate siblings. In a way, I thought it was returning home because now the Manischewitz products were back under the umbrella of an Orthodox Jewish family, which it had to think was in some ways better than having it under the control of Bain Capital who, you had to admit, was not particularly concerned about kosher rules or anything like that. They were interested in the brand. According to Shani Seidman, the chief marketing officer, many of Keiko's kosher products are familiar to very observant Jews, living in heavily Jewish enclaves. But Manischewitz is the one brand with wide recognition, even among less observant Jews and in less Jewish parts of the country. When you go to a kosher section in Nevada or in Northern California, it'll be mainly Manischewitz products. And that's where the distribution is bigger and broader when you go outside these major cities. When someone wants to mention a Jewish food or a Jewish food brand, you're going to mention the Manischewitz brand. It has like around 80% brand recognition in the U.S. Manischewitz continues to be the number one kosher wine brand in America which is sort of baffling, given that you can get kosher wines now that don't taste like alcohol-infused grape juice. But with Manischewitz, as Roger Horowitz says, it's not really about the terroir and the vintage and the bouquet. If you buy Manischewitz, you're deliberately making a decision to taste the past and the way kosher wine used to be. For a not-really-observant, not-at-all-kosher Jew like me, when I celebrate a Jewish holiday, I don't want to drink something that tastes like regular wine, like a wine I might drink any other day of the year. I want Manischewitz, because for me, it tastes like Judaism. It tastes like dozens of Passovers over many years with friends and family. Every time I sip it, those memories come rushing back. It's the ultimate nostalgia product, which is sort of amazing for a brand that has its roots in machine-made matzah, a product so revolutionary that back in its day, many Jews were uncomfortable with it. Manischewitz has a fraction of the sales it did during its mid-century peak, but it's still glugging along. Its sales peak at Passover and Hanukkah and other Jewish holidays. So here's a toast to you, listener, with a cup of sweet, sweet, oh-so-sweet Manischewitz. 
Aha, so memorable. Happy Hanukkah. We'll leave you with some holiday tidings from the soul food scholar, Adrian Miller. I just love me some gefilte fish. I know that's jacked up thing to say. It is bizarre, but man, I just, I don't know. I just dig it. That's our show for today. This episode was produced by Jess Miller with help from Cleo Levin. Technical direction from Merritt Jacob. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. This is the last episode of this season. We'll be back early next year with more thrilling tales of modern capitalism. Happy holidays and thanks for listening. This holiday season, give yourself the gift of ad-free podcasts. A Slate Plus membership only costs $35 for the first year, gives you an ad-free listening experience, bonus content, and helps us keep the lights on at Slate. Sign up now at slate.com slash thrilling plus.